All right. So I feel like every week I say, this is one of my favorite weeks to teach. This week in the past was week four. It's now week six because we put a couple of other teachings ahead of that. And it was something that I feel like I tacked on to the end the first time I did the class because I really wasn't sure where I was going to go with it. But it's the Lord has really shown me its place in the grand scheme of all of this, this teaching. And uh, it really is kind of a capstone or a cornerstone to everything that we have been talking about the past uh, six weeks. And tonight we're talking about Jesus, our advocate, slash the courts of heaven. And that all ties together throughout the narrative of Scripture um, in a really profound way, in a way that I'd not so much recognized in the past. But as I've continued to move forward in this, the Lord, is, the Lord has shown me more. And so, um, real quick, you will have a couple of links in the chat. One is thesourcewichita.com slash beyond-limits. If you click on that, at the very top of the page, you're going to see three buttons. The two buttons on the right side, one is the week six PDF notes, and as always, we're very scripture heavy. But then there's another link, and that's called the uh, Divine Council PDF. And so you guys will want to go ahead and download that. Um, if you want to follow along, I just have a paragraph that I'm going to read. But that was a very crucial document for me one evening. And I'll just tell a little bit of the story. As I, we've been considering, as, as I have seen over the past two, three years, friends and family and loved ones really moving into this idea of engaging heaven and this idea of the courts of heaven, you really start to wonder, where is that in Scripture? And that's what this entire class has been about. Where is that in Scripture? We've been kind of laying this foundation of Scripture for all of the things that we believe are supernaturally possible. But I came across this PDF one evening, and um, it was pretty late at night, maybe midnight, 1230. And I, for, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm looking at some bookmarks and reading some articles. And I just happen upon this PDF. It's called the Hebrew Streams Divine Council PDF. And so if you open that up, it's called Visions of the Divine Council in the Hebrew Bible, a thesis presented to the faculty of the religion division Pepperdine University, Malibu, California. And it was written in 91 and then corrected, it says, in 2013. I got it from Hebrew-Streams.org. And I stumbled upon it, but I began to read this PDF. And as I'm reading, I'm realizing that somebody wrote an exhaustive paper on proof in Scripture that the Father sits in a divine council as judge and essentially is making judgments. So there is 
a courtroom in heaven that is constantly hearing cases where the Lord is rendering judgments and issuing mandates and decrees and rule and law for the kingdom of God. Um, we say these things and, you know, we talk about, oh, the Lord sits on a throne and yeah, he's judge. We start throwing out this idea of the courts of heaven. People are like, whoa, wait, oh, where's that? What is it? What are you talking about? And not only are there, they're there, we can access them and, and there are things happening there in the spirit and people just flat out reject this idea. And so tonight I want to talk much about this idea of the Father's judge. And throughout Scripture, we have certain words that are of, they are legal jargon. There are words like adversary and advocate and records of debt and canceling records of debt and these kinds of things. And I would venture to say that some of these words have been poorly translated, not mistranslated, but poorly translated. Because when we go back and look at some of the original meanings of these words, it all has to do with a legal process that takes place within a court system. And so those, some of those words have been changed over time, and then we've lost this thread that I call it, this thread of the legal situation that's actually playing out within Scripture. And so let me read this real quick to you. I have a couple of highlights from this PDF, and it says, The divine counsel in the Hebrew Bible is a symbolic, and I would disagree with the word symbolic, but as a symbolic ruling body consisting of God as a supreme monarch and various supernatural attendants. Uh, go down to the next paragraph. In his position as head of the council, God holds three primary offices, king, judge, and warrior. He is absolute ruler over all. He makes judicial decisions about the activities of its occupants, and he initiates punitive actions against those forces, divine or human, which cause chaos and disorder, i.e. sin, in order to restore tzedakah, or righteousness, and shalom, wholeness and peace. So let me just stop on that paragraph real quick. If you remember all the way back to week one, we talked about the Ruach Elohim hovering, or week two, the Ruach Elohim hovering over the face of the deep, and that it was what? Chaos and without purpose. It was chaotic and without order. And so God sees this space, and, and in, in, from his nature, desires to bring forth will and order and purpose. And so he begins to form and shape and form and feel and form and separate and form and feel and give mission and give purpose to mankind and to trees and to animals and seas and skies and all of nature and all of humankind. And so we look at the very beginning of Scripture and we see him doing this. And then we just read this statement and it says that he is initiating punitive action against those forces, divine or human, which cause chaos and disorder in order to restore restoration, to restore things to shalom, that is wholeness, the opposite of being fractured or pulled apart or pulled away from. And he's restoring also righteousness. He wants things to be right, not according to our idea of what is right, but according to his will, 
of what is right. So he's ruling. Is he not king? Is he not making judgments and saying, this is, what I dis- this is my decision. May it be understood and decreed and worked out in the earth. Right? An apostle was one sent with a purpose that came from the heart of the Father to be worked out into the earth. A prophet was someone who received the ideas, the heart, the mind, the will of God to then go and speak to the people and help work that out. Jesus came, and he came to free the oppressed and to forgive the sinner and to restore the brokenhearted. And so Jesus did the same thing as the Son coming and living out the will of the Father. So let's just real quick. His obedient angels serve him in each of his corresponding offices. Do we not just talk about angels last week and their role in his kingdom? They serve a purpose. He's commanding the angels. In his royal throne room, they praise their king and act as his official counselors, court, courtiers, courtiers, and messengers. As members of the court, they act as witnesses, investigating detectives, bailiffs, and perhaps fellow judges. As members of the warrior's vast army, they wage war on evil beings. Do they not? The angel was sent to Daniel, and he's like, I got held up. I was trying to come to you. I got held up with the prince of wherever, right? He was fighting a demonic evil force in the spirit, right? And so then the existence of the divine council is witnessed by various literary genres of the Hebrew Bible. It is mentioned in historical, narrative, and poetic passages, prophetic visions, temple liturgy, apocalyptic visions. It also transcends the historical timeline from the earliest primeval history to the final eschatological frontier. You guys should be impressed that I know how to say that word. The concept and imagery of the divine council is thus woven throughout the pages of the Hebrew Bible. That is the introduction to this man's thesis, and he goes to show you every passage that supports his opening statement, that this is where how the Father exists and what he's actually doing Right? What do we think? Again, like last week, we thought angels are just kind of floating around heaven. Like, well, you know, hope the end of the world comes soon, so we'll have some friends up here. You know? And you would think God's just sitting on the throne, mute. Unless we open our Bible, then he speaks and we shut it and he's mute again. Ah. Yeah. As though we control the mouth of God with whether or not the pages of our Bible are turning. Like, what do we think he's doing? He's ruling. He's reigning. There is activity in heaven that is taking place right this very moment. Again, we talked last week. The servant saw in the physical. The prophet Elijah says, let him see, Lord. Open his eyes. And his eyes were open, and he saw an army of chariots and angels. There is a veil that was torn <laughs> between the physical and the and the spiritual and there are things that are taking place there right this very instance we see in isaiah that he sees the lord seated on the throne the train of his robe fills the temple 
pillars, there's shaking, thunder, smoke, glory, angels singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He just said they're worshiping, right? They're doing these things. They have a place. They have things that they're doing. And then later on in Revelation, we see the same thing. John gets the same image, right? He's seeing into heaven. They're still worshiping day and night. They can't help but sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of God Almighty. A canopy of angels continually worshiping the Father, speaking out his praise and his glory. Elders worshiping, people trading, going to the Father, approaching the throne of mercy and grace in their time of need. There is heavenly activity that is happening. There's no pause button on the activity of heaven waiting for us to, like, get our crap together on earth, right? Or for the end of the age to come. So, if you guys are interested, if you're a nerd like me, I would encourage you to continue to read the rest of this PDF because I couldn't put it down that night. I stayed up till maybe 2, 2.30 reading, and that's just not my life. So, you know, there was divine um, influence in that moment for me to actually take the time to read some of this stuff. Because what it did for me is scripturally set a foundation and gave me faith like, hey, I knew it was there, but now I see that it's actually there. How do you deny? I mean, again, it's like evidence in the scripture, but to give me faith to then say, okay, Father. And then to look there, not to end here and say, oh, okay, well, it's there and, you know, whatever. Right? I think revelation, wisdom, knowledge, understanding, revelation is an invitation by nature. It's an invitation into the deeper things of the Father, into his, his loving arms, to his lap, to his mission, to relationship. Right? He shows us these things. Not so that we can just be puffed up with knowledge, but so that it draws us deeper into relationship with him. And so, again, my faith was expanded when I began to read some of this Divine Counsel PDF. And all he did was just lay out scriptures one after the other that's saying the Lord is seated on the throne. He's making judgments. He's, he has plaintiffs. He has bailiffs. He has all of these legal entities within his courts that are going about interacting with him to rule and reign. Do you know what it means to rule? It means to make decisions. And then to reign is to enact those decisions out into your kingdom. Maybe that's what that means. I just made the statement up or got it from the Lord. <laughs> but he's ruling. He is making judgments. He's looking at things and determining whether they are chaotic and without order and need peace, or whether they're wrong and go against righteousness, and so that he rules to bring about righteousness and rules to bring about peace. And it's all about him coming to restore that place, his kingdom come to restore those places. So I just want to start with the Divine Council PDF because, again, that was a really good resource for me, and I want to give it to you and start tonight on that note. So what does all of that have to do with anything? So as we've talked about this entire narrative from week one now to week six, the primary thing that we've been harping on this entire time is that the Father 
is revealing himself to people. And he's inviting people into relationship with him. He's restoring us back to himself according to his original intent. A love-filled, intimate relationship with him. And through that, we gain access to his heart, his mind, his will, his desires. And then he invites us into that and reveals to us also the good works which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them as we're in Christ. And so then now we're in relationship. We get mission. I know some purpose. I know some destiny. He's given me the spirit. I now have power. I have gifts I didn't have before. I'm able to do things that I wasn't able to do before he put his spirit in me, on me, sealed me as his loved child, gave me a place and purpose in the kingdom. And so then I have these gifts. I have these this angelic army behind me to serve and minister as we're inheriting salvation and working out his plan on the earth. So we have all of these things, but we also know that as we move forward in bringing about the kingdom of Yahweh, that we will face trouble and we will face adversity. So, Ephesians 6, verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Where is our struggle? In the heavenly realms. Who is our struggle against? Not flesh and blood. <laughs> I'm just trying to say it as clear as I can. And let me just let me just nail this down real quick. Your friends and family, your spouse, your children, your boss, the people on social media who think differently and live differently than you do, the people who live in a way that goes against your Christian morals and values, the people who come against you as an enemy and seek to harm you and disrupt your peace and tear you apart and tear you down and say bad things about you and steal from you and take things that aren't theirs and are nasty and rancid and vile people, those people are not your enemy. They're not your struggle. Your struggle's not against them. Now, maybe they are your enemy, and Jesus says, love your enemy. And if someone's your neighbor, he also says, love your neighbor. So regardless if they're your enemy or your neighbor, the response is always the same. Love, And we're going to talk a little bit about this later, for love covers a multitude of sin. But he's saying that our struggle's not against the flesh and blood, but against these powers, principalities, authorities, and rulers in the, the dark, what does it say, um, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And so when you see somebody acting out in a certain way that seems vile, evil, and as though they're an enemy coming against you, just know that that influence is coming from somewhere. 
There's an influence that goes beyond flesh and blood. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Flesh and blood will manifest adversarial tendencies, but Scripture tells us that they are not our struggle. And so we have to ascend higher than flesh and blood, and we have to ascend higher than the earthly realm in order to fight the battles where the battle is taking place. Is that not accurate? Amen. So later on, we'll look at the scripture where it says, the weapons we fight with are not of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. So our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's in the heavenly realms. The weapons we fight with are not of this world. They have divine power. So our struggle is in a different place. So our weapons have to come from a different place. And what happens is we fight each other. And we don't even fight each other with, not all the time, with guns and weapons and, and whatever. We fight each other with knowledge. And we fight each other with knowledge of good and evil. And we fight each other with what we think is right or proper theology or proper doctrine or what's moral. And we try and use knowledge to try and convince people of whether they're right or wrong. But none of those earthly tools will ever make a dent in a spiritual battle. Okay? So adversity will come. Struggles in the heavenly realms. We have to, again, focus there. Jesus taught us to pray, our Father who art in heaven. Colossians 3 tells us, set your heart on thing, your heart on things above, your mind on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, which is in the heavenly realm. It's this idea of ascending. It's this idea of getting higher than the fight, right? It's getting the upper hand over the enemy, in a sense. Getting a higher perspective, a different perspective. So let's dive into this idea of having adversity Revelation 12.10 says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power in the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. And so we have an accuser. An accuser of the brothers and sisters, of the brethren, the, an accuser of those who are in Christ, who accuses them before our God day and night. We have an adversary, an accuser, who stands before the throne of the Father and says, look at how terrible they are. Did you see him just sin? Did you see her treat her spouse that way? Did you see that child disobey their parents? Did you see that thief steal? Did you, and just saying, presenting these cases of guilt before the Father, day and night. He is relentless. You know that voice in your head? That oftentimes in the past, if you don't quiet it, is relentless of how terrible you are, how worthless you are. You'll never amount to anything. You'll never be who God called you to be. Let me tell you a weird story. Um, back in the day when I used to smoke um, hydroponic weed, 
<laughs> and I went and hung out with a friend. And um, I got really high one night. And I heard, like, accusation coming against me while I was laying on this bed just high as a kite because I knew I was running from the Lord. And I heard these voices saying, why are we even here? He's never going to amount to anything. You know, like, he's never going to become who the Lord called him to be. And I, actually, at, at that point, I believe they were angels. Um, but just these voices... Right, And so I think that a lot of people hear these things. And, so, and a lot of people will say, well, is that just me? Is that just what I'm thinking? Oftentimes, no. Your ear is turned to the voice of accusation. And that's not anything God would say about you. And you know what's really funny is people be like, well, you can't hear the voice of God, but they just say, watch out for the voice of Satan. <laughs> watch out for the voice of demons. God spoke to me, oh, how, well, no, there's, but you're telling me to watch out that I don't hear some other voice? Okay, so, he's an accuser, accusing day and night. First Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And so, let's just look at this word real quick. Satan, or adversary, is this word in Greek, antidikos, or antidikos, and it's a technical legal term used in antiquity of an adversary in a courtroom. So there's an old word meant adversary in a courtroom, an accuser, a plaintiff, a, a um, criminal lawyer, or a not a, not a criminal defense lawyer, but someone who's trying to lock people up like a DA, a district attorney, someone who's presenting cases to bring about the guilt of an individual or group of people. It's this old word meaning as though somebody in a courtroom, someone seeking official, formal, or binding damages. Satan not only wants to accuse us, but he wants us to pay for our sins. He wants us to pay for being wrong. He wants punitive damages to be done. He wants there to be a punishment for the wrong that's being committed. He seeks to destroy, to devour, to consume. He is seeking a judgment of destruction upon your life. He seeks to destroy. He seeks to devour. So, we've got this adversary who is seeking legality to bring about punishment for the sins of people. And so this word, dike, means right, or in right standing, and judicial approval. And so antidikos is literally against the judicially approved. Those whom the judge has approved and acquitted Satan is anti that. And it says that he stands day and night accusing. So you want scripture? I'll give you scripture. Zechariah 3, verse 1. Then he showed me the high priest Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord. So Zechariah is having a vision. He's being shown by the Spirit 
a vision. Then he showed me the high priest Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord with Satan, that adversary, that legal adversary bringing accusation against the high priest Joshua in the spirit before the angel of the Lord and standing at his right side to accuse him. So they're standing there. Joshua, the high priest, with Satan next to him, and Satan is just levying charges against him in front of the Father. And the Lord says to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. May the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Isn't this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? And so the Lord is now going on the defensive for Joshua and speaking to this predetermined with judicially approved standing of Joshua as a burning stick snatched from the fire. This is the judgment that had been rendered upon Joshua previously. And so Satan's coming to bring an accusation that doesn't line up with the previous statement that had been made about who Joshua was. So he's coming against a reality of who Joshua is in the eyes of the Father. And so it says, now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. So the angel of the Lord spoke to those standing before him. So he had some servants in where this court thing is taking place. And he tells them to go do something with Joshua there in this scenario. Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to him, see, I have removed your iniquity from you and I will clothe you with festive Robes. Then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So a clean turban was placed on his head, and they clothed them in garments while the angel of the Lord was standing nearby. Then the angel of the Lord charged Joshua, this is what the Lord of armies says, if you walk in my ways and keep my mandates, you will both rule my house and take care of my courts. I will also grant you access among those who are standing here. So let's just back up and look at this scenario one more time. The prophet Zechariah is having a vision. He's seeing before the angel of the Lord, where angel of the Lord, there's accusation coming, Satan accusing against Joshua. The Lord speaks out essentially in judgment and saying, I rebuke you for that accusation. That's not who he is. Here's who he is, and I'll prove it to you. And he dresses him in white robes. Come, let us settle the matter. Though you were as red as crimson, I will make you as white as snow. Jesus says in Revelation, I counsel you to buy from me white linen to replace your filthy robes. I'll wash you clean. I'll cause you to walk in my ways. In the spiritual, in the heavenlies, in front of the Father, He's doing this and taking off filthy robes and putting on clean robes and giving Joshua this mandate and saying, here's who you are and here's what you're going to do. Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your colleagues sitting before you. Indeed, these men are a sign that I'm about to bring my servant the branch. Notice the stone I have set before Joshua. On that one stone or seven eyes, I will engrave an inscription on it. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. And I will take away the iniquity of this land in a single day. On that day, each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. 
So here we have this scenario in the spirit where Joshua, the high priest, is going through this court case where Satan's there accusing him. The Lord brings judgment. He says, you are not guilty. You are as white as snow. Here's new robes, and you're my servant, and here's what you're going to do, and I'm going to use you, and here's my will, and it's going to happen. It's going to come forth. And he tells Joshua, I'm going to give you access to those standing before me. Who was standing before him? Where was he? Heavenly counsel ruling from his throne, and all of those who are there with him. And so if you want to say, well, the Lord doesn't give people access to, well, he did it for Joshua. He did it for Isaiah. Ezekiel saw wheels and temples. Daniel saw visions and angels. And, I mean, John in Revelation saw the heavenly, something like a sea of glass, right? Seven lampstands, bowls, um, scrolls being opened. Jesus riding in on a horse, right? with a tattoo on his leg and a sword in his, coming out of his mouth. and I mean, access to those standing there. And it's for the purposes, again, I believe, of making known his will. And also speaking to the reality of who we are. Christine and I were talking about this earlier today. And there's this idea that sin is not so much an act of an action or an omission. It's not so much what you do or you don't do. It's a, it's a recognizing or not recognizing of who you are as the Father has determined who you are. So if the Father said, you're my son and, with, and I am well pleased with you and I walk around saying, well, I just don't know if God loves me and you know, I'm just unworthy and he's not pleased with me. I'm going directly against the heart of the Father. That's sin missing who I am in him because he said that's who I am, not because I made myself that way. I talked about standing before the throne of the Father. And if we come to the Father in prayer and engaging in the relationship and we come trying to bring good works or we're feeling great about how much we read our Bible and how much we quoted and how many YouTube videos we watched from T.D. Jakes and we come to the Father, you're like, Lord, I'm feeling good. I've been watching YouTube videos. I've been reading my Bible. We are essentially bringing what we think are our good works before him to stand worthy to be seen as sons. And if we do that here on earth, how much more would we not do that approaching his throne in the heavenlies? You brought me your good works on earth. Those aren't going to do you any good there or here. And so we have to, by Christ and what he's done, right? This is what he said. I'm going to take away the sins of a nation in a single day. I'm going to wipe out the iniquity of the land in a single day. It's what he's done. And we approach through the work of the cross, Jesus, forgiving our sins. We're going to dive into that. That's how we approach. So let me get back on track. So if we have an adversary, it's also important to know that we have an advocate. 1 John 2, 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous one. So we have Satan as an adversary coming against us, but then we have Jesus as an advocate that is for us, appealing to the Father on our behalf, interceding for us also day and night. So if we have an accuser who accuses day and night, we also have Christ who advocates 
day and night. So if we do sin, if we are guilty of accusation, Christ still sets us right by his stripes and by witnessing that we are his and what he's done for us. So let's look real quick at this word, advocate. So in the Greek, it means parakletos. Para, meaning from close beside, and kaleo, meaning to make a call or to make a judgment. And so Christ is our parakleto that is going against the antidikos, the advocate to offset the accuser. And so this word advocate, again, is a legal term, a legal advocate who makes the right judgment call because they're close enough to the situation. Parakletos is an advocate or an advisor helper, and it's the regular term in the New Testament used for an attorney or a lawyer, someone giving evidence that stands up in court. Listen, this, this is like BibleHub.com Greek definition of these words, and it just blows my mind that when you look up adversary, it's legal. When you look up advocate, thank you, it's legal. There is literally, or maybe not literally, there is a legal battle going on for your right standing with the Father in the heavenlies. And Jesus steps in as our attorney, right? We're guilty of sin. We are guilty of sin for the wages of sin is death, right? We should be paying the penalty, the punitive damages. It should be said that we are guilty. The gavel should hit and the file should be closed and stamped guilty and a fine, a penalty, penalty, punitive damages levied against us for being found guilty of our actions, right? The wages of sin is death. Satan desires for us that destruction, He's fighting for the destruction of our lives so that those punitive damages would be made to happen. But Christ advocates for us. Colossians 2, 13, 15. Well, let me back up real quick. This idea of an advisor helper that's close enough to make a judgment call. It means that Christ is in the situation, that Christ is a witness. He has 100% understanding of the scenario. He knows if we are his, and he's close enough to us, close enough to our lives, in us, with us, to make the judgment call and say, no, they're mine. They're not guilty because I died for them. And he makes that judgment call for us. He's the one that presents himself as the attorney that advocates for our innocent innocence because of what he did. I don't know that we have any business trying to plead in innocence. I don't know. We can talk about that. But Colossians 2, 13 through 15, And you who were dead in your trespasses, so we sin, we die, death of spirit, right? Not connected with the Father. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. Remember we talked about 
struggles not against flesh and blood, powers and principalities. He disarmed them and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So let me just tell you, that right there tells me that we don't have to essentially fight for victory, that we stand in victory in Christ over these things. So it's not whether or not we do the right thing to defeat the enemy. It's that the right thing has been done and we come into alignment with that, that we do have victory in him. And so we have divine power to demolish strongholds, weapons, uh, weapons of warfare, not of this world. Divine power, and that power is always Yeshua. What he's done, who he is, his authority, he disarmed them and put them to open shame. So let's go back. We've been forgiven our trespasses. So we were dead in our sin. The damage of death was due to us because of our sin we're dead in our sin and then jesus comes and god makes us alive with christ forgives our sins and the father also says it's for my benefit that i'm going to forgive you it's for my glory that i'm going to forgive your sins i'm going to do this i'm going to make you right i'm going to make you white as snow. I'm going to cause you to walk in my ways. I am going to take away the entire iniquity of a land in a single day. It was always the Father's will to bring us back into right standing with him and restore us to him. And so by canceling that record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. So are you guys seeing this whole scenario playing out where we have an adversary, an accuser, we have an advocate, a lawyer presenting evidence of our innocence. So one wants us guilty, one says we're innocent. There are judgments to be made, right? And so when we were dead in our sin, there was a record of debt to be paid for that sin. So if you go down to the courthouse right now, there are records of court cases that have taken place and you can pull out those files or open the PDFs <laughs> and you can see a case that was made on this day. So-and-so was brought before this judge at this time in this room. This was, the, this was the complaint, the file that was charged. These were the legal proceedings. The wit we had witnesses, we had evidence, we had litigation, we had Lawyers going back and forth presenting their case, and then there was a judgment that was made, and they were either innocent or they were guilty. If they were innocent, they walked free. There were no charges, no damages, no punitive debt to be paid. And if they were guilty, well, then there was a fine, there's a jail sentence, there's something that must be paid in order to, I don't know if I want to say make right, but in an exchange for the wrongdoing that had taken place. <clears throat> And we can go and we can pull all those files. Have you, have you ever heard of having a file or a case expunged? That means it's what? It is wiped from the record. It never happened, my friends. And this is so important. It's so important. We keep more record of our sin than the Father does because he keeps no record of our wrong. 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, does not mean it does not boast, it's not self-seeking. It keeps no record of wrong. There is no record of debt. There is no record of our sin. It does not exist. And I know you've been hearing some teaching lately from 
Francois on this idea, and Cam has talked about this as well. She said this is the year of forgetting. A lot of us are keep remembering our debts. We keep pulling up the records of our own wrongs, condemning and judging ourselves when the Father has already judged us as righteous and loved. Love holds no record of wrongs. Love covers a multitude of sin. And how much more, if we keep record of our own wrongs, do we then do that of others? We were talking about love today, and I was talking to Christine about this, and man, the Lord just hit me. And he said, you've been keeping record of Kim's wrongs. You've been keeping record of the debt. And I just had this image of these filing cabinets, and I just like knocked them over and set them on fire. <laughs> just burn them up. And I think about that phrase, for his mercies are renewed every morning. That every day is a new start. It's a fresh start. It's, it's, it's his way of wiping the slate clean for us. We, I mean, there's always another day. Right? I mean, we can argue about that. But to me, it's this idea of the Father day in and day out. A love, love covering a multitude of sins. Covering them in the sense that they no longer exist. What once was is no more. And so, how much more then can we receive that love from the Father to then also give that love to others? To me, that love now is not even just seeing past the wrongs, but forgetting the wrongs as though they never existed. With the measure you judge, it will be judged to you. If you keep record of wrongs, the record of your wrong will be kept. If you do not forgive others as the Father's forgiven you, the Father will not forgive you. How hard is that? Well, it's not so hard when you receive the love of the Father in that regard. If this is what he's done for me and this is what love is, how much more should I begin to do that for others? I was saying that with the gospel, and I think maybe you talked about this, but I want to hit on it one more time. I was reading earlier in Corinthians, and it talks about the gospel that Paul preached. He said, when I came to you with the gospel, that Jesus died for our sins, and that he was buried and he rose on the third day, and that he appeared to um, Peter and John and many others over an amount of time, and he begins to just describe this message that he brought to people. And the first thing he said is that Christ died for our sins. And then he goes on to talk about all of the other miraculous things that followed that initial statement of Christ dying for our sins. And I said, you know, I think it's easier to, to grasp or to get a hold of believing in the miraculous nature of what Christ did with dying and resurrecting than it is to actually believing that he forgave our sins. Because we can teach all day long and say, you must believe, you know, if, if you believe in your heart, confess that this thing, you know what, I think a lot of people actually miss the gospel because they don't really know what it means that Christ has forgiven our sins. That to me is the harder thing to grasp, that the love of the Father is so deep and so wide and so immense and so big and so great that he, 
he says that he canceled our record of debt, that there's no record. But we're like, God knows all things, and he knows everything I did. Right? And we try, we're like, I just don't understand that. Because it's so difficult for us to forget all of the things that we've ever done that have been wrong. But that's the beauty of the gospel. That is the good news, that that record of debt has been canceled. The people hearing this message of Christ forgiving sins, they knew all about what it took to forgive sins. They knew that there was a temple where there were priests that were working day and night, sacrificing, sprinkling blood, going through ritual, doing these things, feasts and tabernacles and law and um, killing of goats and sheeps and scapegoats and doing all these different things, blood, right? And just this work that went into all of this leading up to the Day of Atonement where they would then go into the Holy of Holies and then maybe even not have done everything correctly and then die in the presence of the Father. They would have known the intensity of what it really meant to have sins forgiven, to have a a record of debt canceled. They would have understood the term adversary to be one of a legal courtroom. They would have understood advocate to be one of a legal courtroom. They would have understood canceling record of debt having been one of a legal courtroom so that when they thought about the divine counsel of the Father that had been portrayed all throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, this would not have been something new to them. They would have been like, oh yeah, that's what he does. That's who he is. No question that that's who he was and what he was doing. And so to say, here comes this piddly little carpenter guy who was born in Bethlehem and came from Nazareth. Does anything good come from Nazareth? Get out of here with those miracles Right? Who do you think you are? You're the son of Mary and Joseph. Crucify this guy. Blasphemy. Doing things by the name of Beelzebub. Just nasty, gross towards him. And they're saying, he's the one? We do all of this ritual, but this guy is now the one that cancels our debt? That's ridiculous. And on the flip side, people would have known exactly what they meant, and they would have rejoiced. They would have gone away rejoicing. And those were the people who stood in front of the proconsul and said, we cannot help but speak of the things that we've seen and heard. You don't get it. This is life-changing. This is something that we would have never expected to witness in our lifetime. Blessed are we to have witnessed such an amazing thing, the mystery of the gospel, that it includes the Gentiles in the kingdom of the Father, that the forgiveness of sins is not only for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. Oh my gosh, I'm going to travel the world, and I'm going to speak this message, because this is massive. I'm going to get chained up, left for dead, beaten, bruised, and essentially killed, because this message is so important for people to understand, because they understand it in a way that I don't think we've actually truly grasped. Yeah, Jesus died for my sin, but man, I just, oh, I just can't help thinking about those things that I did, or we still call ourselves a sinner. Man, I'm just a sinner. I'll just, oh, what a wretched man I am. Who will save me from this body of death? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Well, I, w- I was, right? I once was lost, but now I'm found. You're not a wretch anymore. You're not a sinner anymore. You're not worthless anymore. There's no debt to be paid. There's no punishment to be had. There is nothing 
any longer that you need to do to bring yourself into right standing with the Father. And there was never anything that you could have done in the first place because it's the Father's work and it's his great love for us. And he's the one that hit the gavel and he's the one that said you're not guilty. And he says there's no record. A love, our, my love covers a multitude of sins. And so... Romans 8.34, who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Jesus is close enough to the situation to sit at the right, of, right hand of the Father and tell him, they're innocent, they're mine. I died for them. There's no, Yahweh, there's no record of debt. Is there any record of debt to be found? There's no record of debt. We'll go check the files. There's none. Are you sure? Nope, none. Well, I seem to remember. I don't remember anything. (laughs) Romans 3.24, they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This word justified is dika eu or something like that. But that term dika, dika, means right, judicially approved. So justified is that word, dikayu, and it means I make righteous, defend the cause of, plead for the righteousness or the innocence of, acquit, justify, hence I regard as righteous. So Romans 3.24, they are justified. They are acquitted. They are regarded as righteous. They have had their cause defended. We have had a plea for a righteousness through Jesus. He was the one that stepped in and said, I'm making a case on behalf of their innocence. And it says, freely, we are justified freely. What does that mean? It costs us nothing. It costs you nothing. It's free. It's too good to be true. It's the gospel. It's the best message in the world. It is too good but it's true and he's too good and he loves us so much. It's ridiculous. I think about my daughter, Illy and she gets on my nerves. Sometimes she's, she does things that I don't like. We get after her, but I have forgotten most of what she's ever done wrong. I don't remember. And that's the love of the Father. He sees us, and he's just like, I just love you so much. My gosh, you're so beautiful, right? Sings praises over us, tells us how beautiful we are, holds us in his arms and his lap, and and just loves us. That's the good news to me, you know? And so Christ is our advocate. Although we journey through this world and we have these things that come against us, we have divine power, we have an advocate. Not only do we have the Spirit of God in us and power working through us and all of angel armies for us, we also have Christ who's been given all authority and all power who is pleading for our innocence as the accusation is being brought. And so, 
there's so much more. I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to create a bonus video because I want to teach through the rest of this because I think it's it's really important. But the question I have been posing each week is this question, what is possible? And tonight I just put that phrase at the bottom of the page to ask, what is possible? You tell me what's possible. You tell me based on what we've covered, who the Father has shown you that he is, the faith that he's given you to accept and embrace supernatural possibility, whether it's been an inch or a mile or a half a mustard seed or a mustard seed. Like, that's the question. What is possible? Is it possible that there has been a court case for my innocence that's taken place in the throne room, courtroom of heaven in front of the Father and that Jesus has pled on my behalf? Scripture says it has. Do you believe that place exists? Oh, it's just symbolic. Oh, is it? If that's symbolic, then everything's symbolic and nothing is real. <laughs> and so as we journey in relationship with the Father, we just paint the picture. It is possible that he continues to reveal plan to us. It is possible that he gives us details for working out his will. It is possible that the Spirit then continues to move through us as we teach and prophesy and as, we, as we're patient with people, as we're kind with people, if I'm just kind to somebody today, that, that's the fruit that the Spirit bore to bring forth kindness from the kingdom into that space, at that place, at that time. And we want to think that we want to do these big things and we'll do big things, but even just living out what the Spirit is calling you to do in little ways on a daily basis is bringing the kingdom. How do you, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? How does the kingdom come into the earth one act of obedience at a time, one spirit-led action at a time. As the waters cover the earth, so the glory of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth, will fill the earth. And so it's possible that we move forward in power, we move forward in identity, we move forward in destiny, we move forward with strength, we move forward with angels on our side. We move forward with Christ on our side. We move forward and we have adversaries that come against us, and so we wield divine weapons to break those strongholds. That we, It is possible that we find ourselves standing before the angel of the Lord with an adversary at our side accusing us, and that the Lord makes a judgment based on that accusation, and we walk away in white robes with more understanding of who we are because he speaks it over us. I think all of that's possible. And so I hope that somehow, some way, through all of these weeks and all of this, all this scripture and all of this talk and all this teaching, I know it's a lot, but I hope that somehow, some way, the Lord has unlocked a little bit more faith in you to embrace what is supernaturally possible. Um, and so, with that being said, Christine's class, Intro to Engaging Heaven, starts next week, Tuesday at 
1 p.m. Central Standard Time, and Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. Central Standard Time. You can go to thesourcewichita.com, and under Ministries, you can click Engaging Heaven. And so her intro class is starting. So the Beyond Limits class is meant to be a scriptural foundation to then step into this class where Christine is teaching about all of this experience, relationship with the Father, intimacy, angels, blueprints, mandates, um, authority, commanding your day, engaging timeline. I mean, just all kinds of spiritual activity. So I say, here's what I believe is supernaturally possible. And she comes and says, here's what I'm living in the supernatural. And she and she says, let's do it. So they actually do it. So that's the difference. Is she will teach for an hour, but then you will actually focus on the Father in the heavenlies for the next hour and or hour or so. And um, it's really it's really an experience. And so again, that starts and um, that is the what do I do now, right? At the end of Beyond Limits, it's like, what do I do now? Go do that. Go do it. And she is mandated and called by the Father to teach and lead through her experience of what has been taking place. So I wanted to make one more statement one more statement real quick as you're thinking about that because then again this is scriptural foundation for where we see a lot of what has happened and what is possible but i don't believe that everything that has happened and everything that is possible is list, listed out in scripture so if we know that there's a courtroom of heaven we know that there has been times where people have seen into that space we get john who i mean i keep saying john but like Ezekiel, um, Isaiah, a bunch of these guys had like crazy heavenly revelation. And so you get John who really, who lays out a bunch of what he sees in heaven. But here's the idea. If there's, if there's courts, again, places are, you know, things are a shadow. And how, I mean, how do you think things came to function the way they do in the court system? They didn't, they didn't just make that stuff up the way kings function, like, they didn't make that stuff up. It came from the divine. And so, obviously, it doesn't follow everything 100%, but I'm, I'm trying to take a logical approach that some of the things that you're going to hear in the intro class is strictly from revelation and not necessarily from Scripture, but it's not anti-scriptural. It's extra biblical, but we've just laid a foundation that if there's a courtroom, like what else is there? You know, where, whatever, you know, like there are, God talks about, or uh, Job talks about storehouses in heaven. So I can say, oh, there's a storehouse. Well, don't you think there's rooms and things and people running it, right? You think about all this stuff. There's a cloud of witnesses. Well, how many are there? Who are they? What are their names? Where'd they come from? Well, there's angels. Well, how many are there? And what are their names? And what, So you see what I'm saying? Like, it's there. If we believe it exists, we have to believe there's more to it than what has been seen. And so I don't think that all of the revelation of heaven has been given only in Scripture. 
if God is doing this and revealing to people things that they need to know according to his will and his plan as they need to know it, don't you think there's more to reveal than what has had been revealed? So you start talking about clerks and filing petitions and getting a decree of divorce and like all this different stuff. Like that's all a part of a legal process that we see on earth. So you start to hear about that legal process in the classroom. It's because people have been led to do that because they're in a courtroom. Right. And then there's like, again, divine counsel. And then there's like different courts and different rooms and quarters and places. I mean, heaven is no small place. Okay. And so just remember that, that like, even so logically, there's a lot more going on there than we even realize. And as I said before, just because you don't see it doesn't mean it's not happening. And just because someone else sees it doesn't mean that you should reject it because you haven't seen it because everybody has their place. Listen, has anybody in here in this room ever been to the judge's quarters, personal quarters in the courthouse on Main Street. Just because we haven't been there doesn't mean it doesn't exist, okay? I know that's logical, but there, I don't know what it's like inside the White House. I've never been. Some people have been there. I tell you, I don't know what it's like in the bunker under the White House because only a few people get to go there. It's because of their role in this entire thing. Everybody has a role. Everybody has a place. Everybody has a certain level of clearance. Everybody has something they need, is on a need to know basis, okay? The kingdom of heaven and what we see in the spirit is on a need to know basis. If you need to know it, you'll know it. If you need to see it, you'll see it. If you need to go there, you will be led there. 